Welcome everyone to The Spoken Nerd, the podcast about database technology. I'm your host, Connor McDonald, and yes, you would be permitted in actually calling this podcast The Unspoken Nerd because we've been on a bit of a hiatus for some time. No excuses there. Unfortunately, I've done a lot of travel the last few months in the Yatra Tour in India and then subsequently Cloud World after that. I've just got back from Vegas and a short holiday in Canada. So we'll try to get the podcast frequency a little bit back to what it was before in terms of once every couple of weeks. We've got a few guests coming up, but today it's just me solo and I'm once again going into my back to basics genre of podcasts. And we can't really go any further back in terms of basics than asking a very simple and fundamental question, why do we have databases at all? I would contend that most businesses have databases as opposed to any other form of record keeping as a means of having a statement of record, a proof of events. You often hear the phrase single source of truth as being the motivator for databases. Ultimately, of course, nowadays in the world of microservices, the utopia of single source of truth has perhaps gone by the wayside. I know my partner Genevieve, who works in business intelligence, often comes home complaining that if she sees another version of the same customer record because of microservices, she's going to scream, but that's a discussion for another day. Ultimately, databases store data in a way to provide evidence as what is going on inside your business. Most of us, I'm sure, are familiar with the acronym ACID when it comes to databases, and typically it's the C and the D, the consistency and the durability of data that is the most important elements here. There are two elements of proof here. The first is, as a custodian of data, you want to be able to prove exactly what's happened. That's why we have this permanent record of events. But the second element of proof is to an external party. Namely, what happens if an auditor comes in and says, I need evidence that you can demonstrate to me what has been going on in your business. Have you abided by all the regulations and rules that might come with storing data in your enterprise? So far, this seems to be just a statement of the obvious, but I thought I'd present a fictional story, but based on a real customer's experience to describe that the element of proving to auditors that you have a statement of record, a realistic view of what has happened in your enterprise, is sometimes not as trivial as it might seem. Now, I need to anonymize the example to protect the customer concerned, but we'll assume that we are building a database to hold retail transactions. Most people that have met me at a conference or have seen the backdrop of my office hour sessions know that I enjoy a gin and tonic from time to time. In fact, in fact, I picked up a couple of bottles uh, when I was in Vegas for Cloudworld and I bought them home. So we'll create an example here of an online shop that sells alcohol. And we'll build up this example nice and slowly. We'll introduce more rules as we go along to show how easy it is to assume that you have a proven auditable record of what's going on in your system. And yet, be unaware that you're about to get yourself into dramas. To set the scene, here is the first cut of my application. Let's assume I can sell alcohol via my online shop. We're going to make it nice and easy. We're not going to do anything in terms of proving ID and age and stuff like that. Just a nice, simple application that takes transactions. But we have a legislative requirement. When it comes to selling alcohol in this fictional place that I'm working, you cannot sell alcohol after 9 p.m. 
It doesn't matter what kind of shop you are. It doesn't matter what type of alcohol, any day of the week. This is a cast iron rule. Every shop that sells alcohol on every day of the week can only sell it up until 9 p.m. To make this example even simpler, we'll keep it purely assuming a single time zone. This is not a global site. This is just running in one small part of the world. So no time zone issues, etc. We just have to worry about 9 p.m. each night in my current time zone. I can no longer sell any alcohol. With a requirement that simple, you could most probably literally hard code that into your application, either in the application tier or even in a database trigger. We could simply have a piece of code that says, take the hour component of sysdate, convert it to a number. If it's greater than or equal to 21, assuming a 24 hour clock, then raise an error. You cannot continue that transaction. That's easy to do. And more importantly, as transactions occur in your system, when the auditors come along, say in a few months or six months later, and they query your transactions table, you can be very confident there will not be a single transaction in that table that has a timestamp of 9pm or later. I'm assuming here there's no bugs in your code. So with that simple base, let's now take things up a notch. Let's assume that 9pm is now no longer cast in stone, but is variable. Let's face it, legislation sometimes changes. There might be some rules that come along. Let's assume for the sake of this example that once every few months or once a year, sometimes that time may change. As a result, I'm probably no longer going to hard code that 9 p.m. component into my application code. I don't want to have to change the code every time some legislation change comes in. I'd rather be able to store that as metadata. And as we know, when it comes to metadata, we stick that in a database table. This is still a dead easy requirement to implement. I've got my table. I might just have a single row in it saying, yes, 9 p.m. is when you can no longer sell alcohol. That may change over time. I may even keep a history of it. But in reality, it's just a simple lookup. Every time I'm about to try sell some alcohol, I query that table, look up the terminating time, check my current time of day, and it's a simple yes or no decision. If it's after 9 p.m., then I can no longer sell alcohol. If in a few months' time that rule changes to 10 p.m., I change the table, and then once again, I simply check that table and decide whether my time of day is before that limit. Once again, so far, so good. This is an easy application to make. Let's now change this example once again, make it a little bit more complicated. Now let's assume there is not a time in which we nominate that you can no longer sell alcohol. There is a directive. Now, what do I mean by a directive? I'm assuming that each day at some point in the evening, a message comes in from an external party, might be the government or something, saying stop sales now. And from that point onwards, you can no longer sell alcohol. So most of the time, we can assume that message would come through, say, at 9 p.m., and at that point, you can no longer sell alcohol. The next day, it might come through at 9.05, the day after at 9.10, the day after that at 8 p.m., etc. It's variable, but it's no longer a time of day. It's simply the arrival of a message from an external source saying, this is it, time to stop selling. From that point onwards, you can no longer sell. In terms of implementing this, Seeing as our previous iteration of the application already had the concept of a table with a terminating time stored in it, I can simply modify that table to say, rather than having a time, I'll simply have a status saying, is the ability to sell currently open or closed? 
I might have a row for each day in there and it might start always assuming open. And when the message comes through saying we can no longer sell alcohol, we would simply update that value from open to say something like closed. Now, every time someone comes onto my site and wants to buy some alcohol, I would change my app to do the following. I would query my table to see what the status is. If the status is open, then I allow the sale. If the status is closed, then I would disallow the sale. Seems easy enough. We would implement that and away we go. And a week later, the auditors come in, they pick a random day and they check your sales transactions for that day. When they look at the status table, it might say, yes, the status changed from open to closed at 9.01 and 1 second p.m. Then they go query your sales table just to make sure that nothing was sold after that moment in time. And lo and behold, they find a sale that occurred at 9.01 and 2 seconds, just slightly after the time your system said alcohol selling was no longer allowed. Uh-oh, you've just broken the law and the proof is actually sitting there right in your statement of record in the database. You literally have a transaction that occurred after the closure message came in from this external party. At that point, you've got one of those awkward conversations with both the auditors and perhaps legal representatives. You'll be sitting there going, well, it's just a second or two, or there's no way that could have happened, or there must be a bug, etc. But even if your code has been implemented correctly, you can get into this scenario. And many of you, I'm sure, have already guessed this is related to Oracle's concurrency control feature, the multi-version concurrency control. Let's take a look at how this could happen. A message comes in saying we need to close off the selling of alcohol for the day. We get this message and we update our status table. We say, yes, it currently is open, but when I'm about to set it to closed and the current time is 9.01 and 1 second. At the same time this is going on, a new sales transaction comes into our system at time 9.01.02. It queries the status table. However, as we know, a session in Oracle cannot see uncommitted transactions from another session. So when it queries the status table, it will see a status of open because the closure transaction that's occurring in some other session has not yet committed. From a sales point of view, we are permitted to continue this transaction and sell the alcohol. The closure request now completes by committing its transaction. The sales request completes by committing its transaction and bang, you're in trouble. We have a misordering of transactions, which is then very hard to prove to auditors that in fact the sales transaction came along after the closure message was first received. It just hadn't been committed. Solving this issue is relatively easy. Every time I'm going to start a sale, I would lock the status row, make sure that it cannot change while this sales transaction is occurring. Then I would check it, make sure it's open, and then allow the transaction to occur. If it's closed, I would not allow the transaction to occur. I know that it can't be in a state of flux while my transaction is underway because I've locked that row before I start my sales transaction. This does indeed solve the problem but I've now created a brand new issue. That is, in effect, I've reduced my application to a single user system. I can no longer process anything more than one sale at a time because only one person can lock a row at any given point in time in the Oracle database. I'll defer a conversation about lock reservations in 23C 
for another podcast episode. The question then becomes, how do you solve this problem then? How do I allow multiple people to conduct sales transactions at the same time, that is, have a genuine multi-user system, without getting into this anomaly where it appears that I'm breaking the law? One option you might be considering is, for example, using a queue. After all, queues are designed to process things in a particular order. For example, all requests, whether it's a sale of alcohol request or a closure request, might be placed into a queue and every message has a sequence number. All requests would then be processed in order. But once again, that's very difficult to do in terms of having multiple subscribers to that single queue. The moment you impose a rule saying everything must be processed in order, then you have that same problem. I cannot process message N plus one until I've successfully committed or dealt with message N. I'm back to the same problem. Yes, I can have multiple subscribers on the same queue, but I'm still processing everything one message at a time. Even if I could get it to work, converting to a queue system is essentially rewriting your application. A second option you could consider is let's assume all of our sales are coming in through a website and therefore a connection pool. As each session in the pool is initiated or connects to the database for the first time, you would run some initialization code. For example, it could be a logon trigger that adds a row for this session into a table with a status of open. Hence, rather than having just a single row that indicates whether selling is now open or closed, we actually have multiple rows, one row for each connected session to the database from our connection pool. An easy way of doing this would be using something like the ORD SID column, which is a unique sequence number for every session that connects to the database. Now, as each sale request comes in, it would be assigned to a particular session in the connection pool. That session would do a select for update to take an exclusive lock just on its own row, the row that equates to this particular session in the connection pool. If the status is open, I allow that session to continue and commit its transaction. And if the status is closed, then it's no longer allowed. This means some changes for the process that sets the status from open to closed. Rather than having to change just a single row, it now needs to change all the rows from open to closed, where each row corresponds to a session in the connection pool. The way it would do that is it would issue a select for update on every single row and wait for all the concurrent outstanding sales transactions to complete. Once it gets that lock using select for update, it can now update all those rows from open to closed. Any incoming sales sessions will now wait until that lock is completed. And then when they finally get access to the rows, now that the closed process has committed, they would then see that the status is now closed and therefore block the sale. What we've done here is remove that bottleneck of a single row indicating open or closed and extended that now to multiple rows based on the number of sessions in your connection pool. Now I should note, even that solution has a small chance of the issue still occurring. You've lowered it to almost zero, but it's not completely eliminated because as we know, sometimes things happen in databases and sessions can crash. What that would mean is from time to time, there will probably be brand new sessions being created in the connection pool to bring it up to its requisite number. What that would mean is as a new session commences, it would be doing an insert into that table. If a closing process is doing a select for update of all existing rows, 
it would not see the insert of a brand new row which is not yet committed and while the chances are low we are still back to that same possibility of having an error. In order to resolve that the close process would actually have to do a lock table as opposed to a select for update of just the existing rows. A lock table locks all the existing rows and blocks any inserts as well. That would now be a complete solution. But let's remember, we're still dealing with what I would consider to be a very simple requirement. That is, I need to control the access to selling of alcohol. What happens if the requirement is a little bit more complicated? Maybe it's not blocking the selling of alcohol after a certain time or after a certain message is received. Maybe this is divvied up by the kind of alcohol we're selling. What if it's wine, beer and spirits and each one might get a different message saying yes you can sell them or not. Does that mean I need to have three tables now so I can use my lock table facility? What if I have to sell things in multiple parts of the country, each with different rules? Do I now need even more tables? One of the issues with relying on lock table as being a mechanism to manage concurrency is that you then start to need lots of tables, one for each permutation of the requirements you're trying to implement, because we're now using the granularity of a table to implement locking controls in our database. Ultimately, the issue here is we don't have the concept of sharing locks in the database. In the Oracle database, when you take a lock on a row in a table, you are the only person that can take a lock on that row. It is a single user operation. What I would really like is the ability to share a lock. And the reason that would be useful is as each sales transaction comes along, it would take a lock on that one row in our status table saying whether sales are open or closed. However, I would like multiple sales transactions from multiple sessions all to be able to do that, to each take a lock on that same status row. They would need to take a lock because they need to make sure that the row itself is not in a state of flux. It's not being changed from open to closed by another process which manages that operation. The concurrency issue is solved if each of these sales transactions can all lock that common resource at the same time, hence the term shared lock. The close request that would be coming in would not take a shared lock. It would take an exclusive lock on that row in the conventional way. It would thus wait for any outstanding shared locks to complete and therefore be freed, and then it would grab an exclusive lock on that row. While that exclusive lock is in place, while it's being changed from open to closed, no sales transactions would be able to take a shared lock because an exclusive lock would block the ability for a lock to be shared. Unfortunately, the Oracle database does not support that. You cannot take a shared lock on a row in a table. However, that does not mean that shared locks do not exist in the Oracle database. They are simply not implemented for rows and tables, but they are implemented directly in the database kernel. We typically think of locks and rows and tables as going hand in hand, but they are actually separate things. A lock is a resource in its own right. And thankfully, we have a tool in the database that lets us deal with locks, even if they are unrelated to a database table. And we do that via the DBMS lock package. I'm sure many of you are familiar with the DBMS lock package, but purely for its ability to have a sleep command, which is 
finally been moved into the DBMS session package as of 18C. But DBMS lock is a wonderful mechanism for managing locks in the database without having any underlying table rows. Now, if I'm going to have some locks that will be shared by multiple sessions, trying to each initiate a sale transaction, I need some mechanism of naming those locks. The first API I would use within DBMS lock is the utility called Allocate Unique. I probably have some meaningful names, for example, wine, beer, spirits, something that indicates the kind of locks I need to have in my application. Allocate Unique takes those strings and generates a unique number, a unique lock ID. This will be the lock element that can then be requested in either shared or exclusive mode. For the sake of simplicity, let's say I'd run Allocate Unique for something like the sale of wine and it returns me a lock idea of one, two, three. Now for any session that wants to do a sales transaction for wine, it will use DBMS lock and call the request API to get a lock on lock one, two, three. But one critical thing in DBMS lock that you cannot do with a normal select for update is you can indicate the mode that you want to get that lock in. I can request that lock in shared mode. That means any session that currently wants to initiate a sales request of wine can simply ask for the unique lock ID that equates to wine, in this case, lock one, two, three, and then request it using dbmslock.request in shared mode. A shared mode lock allows any number of other transactions also issuing a shared mode lock to share that lock request. They all have a lock on the resource. None of them have any priority over the others. When an external party comes along and says, okay, we now need to stop the sale of wine, it would once again call Allocate Unique to find out that for wine, the associated lock ID is 123. It will now also use dbmslock.request to request a lock on lock ID 123, but not in shared mode, in exclusive mode. As the name suggests, an exclusive lock cannot coexist with any currently shared locks that are out there because it would no longer be exclusive. Thus, that closed request, which is now trying to get an exclusive lock, will wait for any outstanding shared lock transactions to commit and therefore free up their shared lock. Once any outstanding sessions that have been selling wine complete, the exclusive lock will then be granted. At that point, it is the only session that can now get that lock. Any new sales requests that come along will once again try to get a shared lock, but they will be forced to wait because a shared lock cannot coexist with the exclusive lock that is now being granted. Because we have exclusive access to this lock, I can now safely update the status from open to closed and commit my transaction. That then releases the exclusive lock and immediately any outstanding sales transactions which are trying to get a shared lock will be allowed to proceed. Now, when I say proceed, what that means is they will successfully get the shared lock, but when they go check the status of the selling of wine, they'll be told it is now closed. We have solved the issue of serialization without impacting the amount of concurrency that we can have. We can have as many shared locks as we like and they will not interrupt each other. I no longer have to worry about tables for controlling concurrency in the database. I use these resources called locks. That previous example, lock ID 123 was for selling wine. 
When it comes to selling spirits, I would call Allocate Unique and perhaps get a lock ID of 234 or 567, some random number assigned to me by the database. It doesn't matter how many different kinds of locks I need, I can simply call Allocate Unique to get a different lock for each of them. Returning to reality, this is exactly the approach the customer undertook to solve their problem. In the real instance, they had thousands of different types of things that they could sell every single day, and every single one of them would get a stop selling request at random times throughout the day. By taking advantage of shared locks in DBMS lock, they were able to achieve all their concurrency demands they needed. And this was a customer with very high transaction rates across all these different types of things they needed to sell, while still being able to prove to auditors that it was impossible to receive a transaction from a customer after the nominated stop message had come through. DBMS lock is not some new piece of technology that has come around recently in a recent database version. It's been around since at least version 7, perhaps even version 6, and is a direct interface into the standard locking mechanisms that run inside the kernel. I'm sure most of us have used it for the sleep command, but there's a lot of value in there in terms of the genuine locking algorithms. But I will concede the real message here is not the solution, even though I've just described DBMS lock to you. The real message of this podcast episode is being able to detect and know that you perhaps have an issue before the auditors come along and ask those tough questions. Always remember that when you have a multi-user concurrent transaction system, the concept of simply checking a row in some other table, doing some sort of query lookup to a table that might be changing concurrently by other transactions means that you potentially have a serialization issue. And because our databases are indeed the statement of record, the evidence that is provided to auditors and lawmakers about what has occurred in your system, you need to make sure that your applications are correctly handling serialization and transaction ordering requirements. That's all for now for this episode on The Spoken Nerd. If you haven't used DBMS Lock, I'd encourage you to jump out there and check the docs and have a play with it and see how you can exploit it when it comes to the different lock modes in the Oracle database. I'll be back soon with another podcast episode. We've got a number of topics coming up and I've got a number of Oracle resources lined up to talk to you about some of the cool features inside the Oracle database. Thanks for listening to this podcast. The music credit goes to Zanman from Pixabay Music.